Good morning. Halfway through his letter, Peter addresses the issue of behavior in society's most basic unit, the household. He addresses the Christian household slave before turning to the Christian wife and finally to the Christian husband. And in so doing, in the midst of dealing with these issues, he uses the S word, drops an S-bomb. Be subject, submit yourself. And as with any passage of Scripture, it's important to do three things. Observe, interpret, and apply. When you observe, you look at a passage of Scripture basically saying, what does it say? That's observation. What does it say? Then interpretation is, what does it mean? And application is, what does it mean to me? We have a habit of jumping forward to do application before we do observation or interpretation. Let's try this with this passage. We'll observe and try to figure out what it says. We'll interpret, try to figure out what it means, and then we'll apply, try to figure out what it means to us individually. Uh, first, though, let's read it. First Peter 3, 1 through 7. Wives, in the same way, be submissive to your husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as braided hair and the wearing of gold jewelry and fine clothes. Instead, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way the holy women of the past, who put their hope in God, used to make themselves beautiful. They were submissive to their own husbands, like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her master. You are her daughters. If you do what is right and do not give way to fear, husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. When the verb be subject or submit is used in the New Testament, it's always voluntary in nature. That's why it says submit yourselves or subject yourselves. Submission is the voluntary subordination of one person to another with the emphasis on the voluntary. It's the voluntary subordination of one person to another. The call is never with this verb to make someone submit to you. So it is a mistake for slave owners to lay claim to this verse, to put slaves in their place. This has occurred, and it's inappropriate. It's not what this verb allows. In the same way, it's a mistake for husbands to lay claim to this verse, to put wives in their place. It's not what the verse allows. It's not make sure somebody subordinates themselves to you. It's subordinate yourself or subject yourself. It's written to slaves, not masters, and it's written to wives, not Husbands, it makes sense that Peter would weigh in on that. We don't know how many of the apostles were married, but we know that Peter was. Uh, we don't know about Paul, apparently some of the others, but we know. It's what it says in 1 Corinthians 9. Paul writes, do we not have the right to take along 
a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas or Peter. So we know some of Jesus' brothers were married, and some of the apostles were married, but we know that Peter was, and so he weighs in on husbands and wives in his letter. He says, wives, in the same way, be submissive to your husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. What we're going to see in a passage like this is Peter's primary concern is not about order in the home. His primary concern is about the taking root of the gospel in that culture. And an unbelieving husband, how is an unbelieving husband going to be reached? In that culture, it was very, very chauvinistic. And, and we'll talk about that. In that culture, in fact, it was shameful culturally now for Greeks and Jews. It was shameful for a wife to presume to instruct her husband. Now, we're not making this up. That's just the way they were. Um, Peter encourages indirect influence because of the larger issue of the ability of the Christian message to take root in Asia Minor, which is the western part of Turkey. This became the heart of the church, but it was like the wild, wild west. It was an underdeveloped area, and this is where these individuals had been transplanted. Many Christian Jews living in a society that doesn't really understand them. There were a number of Jews in the Roman Empire, but not Christian Jews. And Jews were in the minority, so when they found themselves away from their home, that which was familiar to them, they were in a strange place. But they were the seed of the church, and Peter's overriding concern is not with equal rights. Now, he might have cared about equal rights, but that wasn't his primary concern. His primary concern was the ability of the gospel message to penetrate this culture, to put down roots so it could grow and thrive and develop, which is exactly what it did. This became, this place, Peter Wright, who became, became the heart of the church in the first centuries. And this was the reason, because of this concern, that Paul and Peter spend the time that they do in addressing what we read now. We look at it and we say, gee, this is pretty harsh. And their concern, um, well, is throwing off social structures threatened to put Christians in the crosshairs of government pressure for the wrong reasons. What we know is the Roman government, because of how they had come to understand what it takes to run an empire, they were very, very concerned about order in the home. They, It wasn't just a nice thing to them. It wasn't just a, well, that's a nice way to live. It was central to their ability to have order. Prior to this time, in the 8th century B.C. and older, warlordism was the predominant way of forcing compulsion. It's, it's so in the 8th century, when the Assyrians um, put Israel in captivity, it was brutal. It was, it was just, that's what governments did it. But then, 
the 7th century and the 6th century, things shifted a little bit. There was what we talk about. It was an age called the Axial Age. And if you look at it, all these different movements springing up all over the planet. In China, there's Taoism and Confucianism. It went from a warlord measure means of control to all of a sudden these people are kind of taking upon themselves the responsibility to live according to a code of conduct, to not require being compelled from above, but impelled from within. And it's happening everywhere. In China, it's happening. Buddhism in India and all over the planet, these expressions of internal control. And they became very important because when people ordered themselves within a society, you didn't need to crack down on people as much. So what I'm saying is the Roman government then, they saw order in the household unit as a critical element in their ability to have an empire as far-reaching as it was. So many Roman and Greek writers wrote about order in the home. Aristotle and Sophocles and Xenophon and all these individuals writing at great length, talking about how People should comport themselves in the home. What ended up happening is some of the religious movements kind of were in line with this. Certainly Judaism, which was a very chauvinistic faith. The separation of men and women, and women really weren't considered worthy of being taught religious doctrine. It was very chauvinistic. And Rome, not quite as much. There were some cults that came in Egypt, the cult of Isis, which taught that a woman should overthrow the authority of her husband. Now, what do you imagine happened when this Isis cult came into the Roman Empire teaching these things? What do you think happened? They sent them packing. They cracked down on them. And so this was part of what was happening within the freedom of the gospel, if they were construed to be like the cult of Isis, they would be whisked out of the Roman Empire before the gospel message even had the ability to take root. And in that sense then, Peter and Paul's concern is not just about putting anyone in their place, but it was allowing a social adherence that would allow the message of the gospel to root into culture so that it could grow. And gradually, as the roots of the message go down, it transforms culture gradually. And that is, in effect, what happened. Um, This is why I think Timothy Wright, I mean, Peter Paul writes, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. She is to remain quiet. He is not squashing something, but that's the way the Greeks and the Romans felt. So he says, I am not permitting a woman to exercise authority over the man because culturally it was seen as taboo. And Paul stamps down on it because he doesn't want the gospel to be thrown out of the Roman Empire for any other reason other than Jesus Christ and who he is. And and so that's his point, and that's the major purpose. That eclipses everything else. So some of the texts in the Bible that are 
kind of taken and used as a stick. They are corrective passages that are dealing with things at that time. There are directive texts which indicate the way God ultimately wants things to be. And Paul wrote, there is, in Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, man nor woman. Discrimination based on race, class, or gender is not in line with who Jesus is and how God deals with things. It's just not how he does things. However, when God brings the gospel message, he doesn't throw all those things on the ground at once. He starts with that which will allow the, to take roots. And so what ends up happening in the beginning, the focus is on overturning racial discrimination. Within the Bible, to count, you needed to be a Jew. With Jesus, then the gospel is thrown open to the Gentiles, and that is what Paul and Peter say time and time again. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, is open to everyone, Jew and Greek. And that's where they started. Um, Cultural concerns are behind Peter's comments on submission. They're also behind his comments on beauty. Again, he says, I hope nobody has braids. I don't have braids. That's not, no. Anyway. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as braided hair, wearing of gold jewelry, fine clothes. Instead, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which is of great worth in God's sight. Why is he saying this? Because Greeks and Jews, both of them valued inner beauty over outward beauty. Both of them. This was a cultural value. Greeks believed this. Romans believed this. Jews believed this. Uh, Aristotle, a woman's self-control in all she does, her inclination toward an honorable and well-ordered life with patience and gentleness, are her true beauties. That's the way Aristotle and the Greeks believe. So what Peter is doing is encouraging a approach to living that is in line with what that society valued. Uh, conversely, outward adornments were often perceived as instruments of seduction. And a woman's use of cosmetics in that time was viewed as an attempt to deceive so not really showing what you look like. Let's not touch that. I've heard it said, you know, if the barn needs painting, I mean. Oh, yeah, that's, that's not good. That's not good. Uh, but so what I've. Uh, it was viewed as an attempt to deceive and both were unnecessary. Again, this is culturally. If the woman stayed at home, if you stay at home, you don't need to wear makeup. Again, we're looking at. The culture as it was, it was a very chauvinistic culture. Men were, it was kind of common for men to have a wife and kind of a concubine on the side. And, and this was the way they lived. This was their value. And it's, it was in some ways, yeah, yeah, not a great time to be alive. Anyways, Greco-Roman society was not as chauvinistic as Jewish culture, but their attitudes towards wives made conversion, conversion dicey. A wife's conversion would likely in that culture promote antagonism from a husband for cultural reasons. In that society, it was expected, this was expected now, that the wife would have no friends of her own. It was expected. But that she would have 
her husband's friends and worship her husband's gods. This was considered to be culturally appropriate. If in this expectation, it somebody who a woman who became a Christian, it caused some troubles. Why? A couple things. Uh, the very fact that a woman would adopt a religion other than her husband violated the Greek idea of an orderly life uh, because prosperity and well-being were seen as dependent on religious forces. Disorder in the home was seen as threatening society. Christians were frequently blamed as the cause of public calamity because they didn't submit to these social prescriptions and it was seen that you're making the gods angry that's why we lost that war you're not taking care of your wife you're not forcing your wife to worship your god you're letting her go out to some kind of meeting and that's why this this city state is not as strong as it was this was not just something what i'm saying just painting a picture here this was not just somebody talking about this is a nice way to live there was some power and force behind these prescriptions they were serious. The government saw them as serious. Um, if a husband, um, the wife of a husband was off worshiping a god, not the husband's, it would affect him. It was considered that his wife was rebellious. And that individual then would be looked at as, come on, you got to take care of your home. How can we give you a place of power, a position of power, if you can't even take care of your home? And so to have a wife who worshipped a different god was something that barred a man from moving forward in his life. Uh, the, the wife's attendance at Christian worship would provide her with the opportunity to have fellowship with other people who weren't her husband's friends. And depending on the specifics, it could have far-reaching implications. In light of these kind of attitudes, what we're doing is painting a picture. Uh, Peter's instructions against outward adornment make sense if a Christian wife is attending worship outside her home, especially without her husband. And God forbid that she put makeup on. But that's what's happening. And so what he says, don't doll yourself up, because otherwise people will see you going out. And if you go into a meeting and your husband's not with you, then it's going to be assumed that you're going for a not really nice reason. And in that sense, then, he says, don't don't make yourself up. And if you're going to go to church, don't doll yourself up because it will be seen the wrong way. In light of cultural values, Peter urges that husbands be won over without words by the behavior of their wives. It was a time that a woman didn't speak up freely to a husband, and in that time, Peter argues that if a husband is won over by the word with by the wife without words, that is probably a better way at this time to go about it. Um, he says this is the way the holy women of the past, who put their hope in God, used to make themselves beautiful. They were submissive to their own husbands, like Sarah who obeyed Abraham and called him her master. Sarah and Abraham became object lessons. In Genesis 12, Abraham, I guess Sarah was a looker. And so he's in Egypt in a hostile place, and he thinks, oh boy, okay, here we go. If they see Sarah, they're going to want her. And so what he said, well, let me read it. Now there was a famine in the land, Genesis 12. So Abraham went down to Egypt to sojourn there. For the famine was severe. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. 
And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you're my sister, so that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. In this context, what Sarah does, and she's being held up as an example here, she kind of complies with something that's a little shady, but she does so because they're in a foreign, hostile land. And then Peter holds up the same idea. They're in Asia Minor, a hostile, foreign territory. And in the same sense, then, Peter urges wives to support the role of the husband even when it's not entirely on the up and up. Um, he goes on to husbands and says, Husbands in the same wife, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life. In the context of First Peter, the weaker vessel is primarily understood as physical weakness. As physical weakness. However, uh, in the immediate context, it makes it clear that the female is also weaker in the sense of social entitlement. She didn't have many rights and um, was not very empowered. And again, when you think of it, it really is astonishing to me that a um, hundred years ago, women weren't considered as being smart enough to vote. Isn't that astonishing? It's, it's been something. Discrimination based on gender has been something that survived the centuries. In the church, racial discrimination went by the wayside. Class discrimination was dealt with in England with slavery and the United States in the 19th century. And the discrimination of women is something that does and does not exist to the same degree. It's interesting how that hangs on. Um, Peter teaches that men whose authority runs roughshod over their women, even with society's approval, will not be heard by God. It says so that treat your wife respectfully so it won't get in the way of your prayers. What they believed at the time is that a husband's prayers to the gods, not to God alone, but just to the gods, was important. So that's why they had a lot of temples, and the husband would go to the temple, and he would go to the temple of Diana, or the temple of Artemis, or the temple of Zeus, and, and he would give a fee, and he would pray to the god. And it was believed that when he prayed to the gods, that the gods would respond by allowing his family to be prosperous. And so this happened all the time. A home that was disordered, it was seen that the gods were not pleased. Again, the Greeks believed that order in the home was divinely mandated. And if you're not running your home well, then the gods don't like it. And they're not going to bless you with their favors because you're not doing the things that they think you should be doing. Um, Peter points out then that the um, the order of the home and the husband's dealing with things in a appropriate way is, is important. Okay, that's what it says. All kinds of stuff here. What does it mean? What does it mean? We live in a different culture at a different time. How do we apply this? What do we allow to stick as being primary? 
Um, it's interesting, before Peter tells them what to do earlier in the passage, he tells them why they should do it. He says, for this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. This is ultimately Peter's concern. This is the will of God that by doing good, slaves and wives and husbands, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Peter's primary concern is that Christian behavior should not give Christ a bad name among unbelievers. If you're going to have a bad name among unbelievers, have one because of what you believe, not how you behave. That's what he's saying. Let it take root based on its belief and then deal with the repercussions after that. He encourages his readers to conduct themselves in a way that would be recognized and respected by Roman rulers and society as good, and in so doing, silence the criticism slander of those who cast Christianity as a religion of rebellion. It's just like the Egyptian ISIS cult and what Peter and Paul are saying, don't let that happen. Don't let us get lumped in with religions of rebellion because ultimately we're not. What do you mean we're not? Well, look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. Peter's primary concern is not the alleviation of suffering. Uh, it's the survival of Christianity. And that's why these household codes have value, especially in the beginning of the planting of the gospel in foreign areas. That's um, what it says. Peter says, for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Following in Jesus' footsteps means not responding in kind to the accusers or using deceit, slander, or threats. Peter says, don't repay insult for insult. So to follow in Christ's steps means that you're going to get targeted in an unfair way. And to be a follower of Christ who walks in his steps, it would be don't respond in kind specifically and especially by what you say. So in that sense, let your talk match your walk. Um, he advises that in some situations, silence is the best response, as any other response will be turned against them and seen as an example of rebellion. It's the silence, though, of patient confidence and not passive resignation. Again, it's what, he, what Peter would point out in terms of Jesus is he suffered unjustly. And it's never pleasant to suffer unjustly, but it is not something strange if we follow in his steps. Peter is telling individuals within society it's going to happen. Slaves and women and men. And to be prepared for that. And that's when we get to application. What does this mean to us? What does it mean to us? Let's make a couple points. First of all, the importance of context and interpretation. Um, it is really short-sighted to see a passage like this as a marriage manual. It really is. It's just completely inappropriate to take this, 
pull it off to the side and preach a dogma of subordination on a broad. It's just not what the passage is doing. The proper interpretation of a text is what the original readers would have understood and what the intent of the writer is. Peter is not just sharpening his pencil because he wants to order the home. That's not what he's doing. He wants Christianity to survive. That's what he's doing. And in that interest, there are some things that are going to have to be swallowed for the sake of the gospel. And so, without understanding that context, people have taken this text and other texts and have woven this theology and ripped it apart from the very context in which it makes sense. Um, That's a big thing. That's why... Observation, what does it say? Interpretation, what does it mean? Application, what it means to me. We have to do the first two things before the third thing makes sense. Um, Second, leave room for individual application. It's interesting. Peter doesn't order the wife to attend Christian worship. He doesn't give her the permission to stay home and worship privately in her heart. You know what she, you know what Peter does? He doesn't tell the husband and wife what to do. And you know why? They need to work that out. How are you going to make this work in your home? Here are the principles. We are valuing above all the gospel message, not our social freedoms. And here are some principles, you know, don't do this, do this. Now, here are the principles. Now, you're going to need to figure this out in the home. He doesn't go into excruciating detail, and it would be a problem if he did. What if he said, if you are married, you're not to go to a worship service that your husband doesn't go to. But he doesn't do that. He doesn't dot I's and cross T's. He gives principles that need to be applied A woman who is active outside the home or a married woman appearing in public without the escort of her husband today doesn't scandalize our society. It's not an issue. It happens all the time. Women run public office, get involved in presidential races. It's not the same kind of scandal, therefore, to impose a value that is not an issue today. You understand it just doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. Uh, And that's why it's good that Peter didn't become nitpicky with it. He gave principles to be understood, and then how are you going to apply them? How are you going to apply them within your home? It's going to be something you're going to have to talk about. Third, there are places where it's taught be submissive to your husband. uh, If he hit you on one cheek, turn the other cheek. That's, no, the exhortation for wives to be subject um, raises questions of whether women should stay in marriage where there is physical abuse. And really clearly there is nothing in the passage of Scripture that would either sanction the abuse of wives or suggest that women should continue to submit themselves to that type of treatment. The kind of abuse that Peter is talking about was not physical. It was verbal and perhaps social, a loss of social standing. Even Greco-Roman statues didn't sanction spousal abuse. And therefore, in that culture, a woman who endured domestic violence would not necessarily have been considered a virtuous wife. If you endured 
physical abuse in that culture that would not be seen as virtuous. You wouldn't want to do it, and especially you don't want to do it today. So when it talks about submit to your husband, and if he's beating you up, don't do it. It's against the law. And again, to work that out, that's a tough thing to work out. It's very difficult. But it's not appropriate to argue for subordination to physical abuse in a home. It just isn't there. Even when it says, turn the other cheek, the cheek it was talking about would be a blow, even in that sense, to a guy. It's not a punch. It's it's a slap. If across the right cheek, most people are right-handed, and it's it was this kind of a blow that's being talked about, not this kind. This is against the law. Well, this is against the law. This is against the law. Difficult thing. If you're victimized in that way, or know others who are, it's tough. But don't allow any kind of moralized Christian subjection and submission to, to validate something that has no validity that way. It's just not, no, it's not okay. Um, Peter prohibits this kind of thing when he tells live with your wife was with a weaker vessel on a physical basis. You know? Finally, in terms of response to suffering, and this is the big thing, it says Christ also suffered for you leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. Again, to walk in Christ's steps is to walk in the steps of one who was treated unjustly. This is the example Jesus leaves. It's powerful imagery. When it says he left an example, I think we talked about it last week. If you remember, I remember when we were learning to write in grammar school that there would be paper and they give us tracing paper. I remember using tracing paper and tracing over things, and that is a way that you could follow the example of how the letters and numbers should be written. You trace, that's the image it gives, that Jesus left us with an example that we can trace. This is the way you live. Follow his example. Trace the route he And if you trace the route that Jesus walked, there are going to be some junctures that the writing is not going to be very smooth because Jesus endured some very difficult things, treated very unjustly in the courts, in the streets. And that is what it means to walk in his steps Peter points to Jesus as the true model for how to live a significant, dignified life of freedom, even in the midst of the most oppressive situation. Because Peter's readers want God to be glorified, Peter spells it out. If you really want to be glorified, Jesus said some hard things. Anyone who finds his life, gets his best life now, loses it in the end. And so what what this means then, If you're treated unjustly, don't smile about it. That's fake. Mourn it. But don't think you're doing something wrong. It's not your fault. You're not being paid back. You're not being punished. If you're treated unjustly, it's not a fault. The one whose life we trace 
suffered the same kind of experiences, but he, and we'll talk about how, he lived a dignified life, even though he was treated in a very undignified way. To be abused is to see yourself as shameful. And Jesus experienced shameful treatment, but he never gave in to believing what those people were modeling in terms of how they treated him. He could take in the sense, and you know what he could do? He could endure the behavior, but push away the sense of what they were saying. You're nothing. And Jesus could take the abuse, but he would not take what they were trying to plant in his brain. Oh, yes, I am. I'm a child of God Almighty. I'm his son. And in the context of being treated in undignified ways, it's never pleasant, but you can know just as our Lord experienced it. You can be treated in an undignified way, be treated, and still have dignity. When you understand how God looks at you, how God looks at you, and what he thinks about you. That doesn't mean smile, but it does. Christian's willingness to suffer out of reverence for God in order to follow in the footsteps of Jesus is what Peter is talking about. And again, what Jesus did, he allowed his talk to marry, to match his walk um, does husbands in the same way be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life? What does it mean to be an heir? As we kind of try to draw this to a close in relative to responding to suffering. There's another passage that talks about part of the deal with being an heir of God. Look what it says in Romans 8. You do not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. This is what it says, if children then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. On this side of eternity, unjust suffering is part of what happens when we walk in his steps. How can we manage? How can we manage? We can do what Jesus did. And what Jesus did, He entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Entrusted himself to him who judges justly. You know what that means? He trusted that God would one day balance the scales and switch the price tags. That he would value what's truly valuable and that that would come. That's what he did. He didn't revile. He didn't, when he was slandered, he didn't shout back. He didn't talk back. He didn't trade insult for insult, but he didn't just do nothing. It wasn't passive resignation. Go ahead, keep on hitting. It was patient endurance. And what Jesus did, 
I see what you're doing. I'm going to entrust myself to him who judges justly. So I'm going to take your behavior and I'm going to lift it up to the court of heaven and God will one day decide what's valuable and what isn't. He entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Trusted God to balance the scales. And you know why I think that's important? Don't you find that abusive behavior or disrespectful behavior is the result of somebody doing somebody something to someone else that they don't like. For instance, you're in, you're in work. You're a guy. I pick on guys. You're at work and you are pecked at because there's a pecking order at work. And you're chicken number seven. And you're pecked on by chickens one through six. Peck, 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 peck. You know, again, you can get your own pecking in. You know, you get chicken eight, nine, ten, and, and then you peck chicken eight, nine, ten, but they are in the evening shift, and, you know, so you don't want to stick around long enough to do that. So you know what ends up happening when you go home? The one who is pecked, now he does the pecking. And his wife or his kids, they end up taking the brunt of it. Or it can turn around the other way. Wives experience the same behavior and wait till they get home. It would seem then that, how do you get around that? The person at work, when you are pecked at work, don't just slough it off. Don't just smile and try to forget it. You're saying, what should I do? I don't want to talk. You don't even have to talk back. How about this? Trust yourself to him who judges justly. God, I just want you to say, I know this is wrong. This is not the way your kingdom works. And all this stuff is happening, and I don't like it. And I'm going to give this in because it doesn't help. Maybe I'll talk human relations. You know, and sometimes that works. But you give it to God first. God, I'm going to give this to you. I'm going to trust yourself to him who judges. That's what Jesus did. You know what? That doesn't make the pain go away. You know what it does a little bit? There is a little bit of strength it gives. This is not passive resignation. This is patient endurance. He's going to balance the price scale. He's going to balance the scales, and that's what Jesus trusted him to do. It's interesting. Husbands who trust God to balance the scales won't have the same need to balance the scales on the back of their wife. You understand what I mean? Or wives won't balance the scales on the back of their husband. Trust God to balance the scales. We're going to close with a closing song. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you for the values that you espouse. You are good, a father and king. I pray that we would live our lives wisely. Thank you for the fact that you will one day change the price tax. You will balance the scales of justice one day. Give us patient endurance on this side of that, to live in such a way that we are able to Be like Jesus and walk in his steps. In his name we pray. Amen.